Hey, you're listening to a song by Rostam. And maybe you're saying, hey, this isn't the way we usually start the show. Well, this is no usual show. We'll get to that. But uh, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. Whether you're building a creative career or just need to approach career in a creative way, we're here to help you chart your own path. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Okay, today on the show, we have a creative hero of mine, Rostam. He's a musician. He was a co-founding member of Vampire Weekend. He's not in that band anymore, but I became a fan of Rostam when after I I was a huge fan of Vampire Weekend. After the third album, that album kind of like coincided with a lot of like existential stuff that I was working through and ended up being one of my all-time favorite albums. And I dove into, you know, who are these people making this work? And I found that so much of the things that I loved about the band were because of Rostam, who's a band member, the producer of all three of those albums. And the more I dug in and listened to his solo music and all the stuff he was producing and the artists that he has worked with, people like, I don't know, you might have heard of him. 
uh, Claro, Charlie XCX, Heim, Carly Rae Jepsen, Frank Ocean, <laughs> Solange Knowles. Like, if you are fans of these people, there's a big chance that part of why you're fans of them is Ross Dam's magic music touch. I was freaking out <laughs> getting to have this conversation. It was one that I wanted to have for a long time. It absolutely will not disappoint. Rostam showed up so game to answer questions and get personal. And I was just thrilled because he he exhibits so many of the qualities creatively that I aspire to embody in my own practice. So we'll get to that. By the way, Rostam has a new album out called Change Phobia. It's coming out in the next couple months. You can hear the new single forerunner right now we'll hit it up right now and uh and also you know where you get your music go check it out huge hugely excited to have rostam on the show let's go Well, thanks for doing this, man. I'm so thrilled to have a chance to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Are you, with all things considered, doing okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's been a very sad year and at the same time there's glimmers of hope there have been nice things that have happened but you know yeah hopefully this year brings on uh change like big change in in the coming years and i guess i'm i'm eternally an optimist so that's what i can that's what yeah. i can hope for and work towards and try to do things to to work towards. Yeah, me, me too. And I, you know, it's, it's hard. I feel like in 2020, every, every good thing personally that happens, it's, I can't, it's hard to even be happy about that because there's this other sense of guilt because of everything going on in the world. So it's hard. It's, it, you know, it's been a, it's been a heck of a, heck of a year for everybody, I think. And then especially for some people. Yeah. I, I interestingly, I mean, I got the coronavirus. You did? But yeah, I got it in in March. Um, oh. Well, I was I was in New York on the week of March eighth. I performed with Haim. Yeah. At on on Jimmy Fallon, and as I was flying back from the East Coast, I came down with a fever. What? And 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 so and we were in New York on that was kind of like the sort of like the ground zero week, and when I got home, my my assistant came and picked me up from the airport. We went back to my house and mm -hmm. I got in bed and I stayed in bed, you know, and didn't see anyone for quite a while, but I had four days of fever. And then I came out of it and, and, you know, I, I talked on the phone with my doctor and he's like, yeah, you probably had COVID if you were in New yeah. York, it's probably the case. And then a few weeks after that, I went and got my, I got 
tested for antibodies and I mm. tested positive for antibodies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I haven't had it yet, but did it sounded like your case wasn't, wasn't too bad. You, you know, you had fever and all that, but you didn't have to be hospitalized or anything like that. No, I was lucky. So I count my blessings there for sure. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I was, I was really lucky, but yeah, it, it, it could have been way worse. So, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad it wasn't, you know, I, I have to start this thing. I, I had the uh, privilege to interview another one of my creative heroes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, last year. And I'm going to have to start in a very similar way because you're in that stratosphere for me. And I, I don't have a chance of not fanboying to some degree. So when I interviewed him, I said, I'm going to get the Chris Farley show stuff out out from the start. We're just going to go through it real quick. <laughs> Are you familiar with that skit with where he's interviewing Paul McCartney and and uh, all of his heroes? Uh, yeah, I am familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to, I'm not going to make you stay here very long, but I can't help but just be like, you remember in, in a river where you say, hell yeah, and it swells with the, like, I don't know if it's Irish or Scottish, like uh, fiddle or violin, like that was awesome. Like <laughs> I feel that man. Um, so, <laughs> and also Hannah Hunt, when the piano drops in, I'm like, I've listened to that thousands of times. So first of all, I'll just say thank you for your music. It's a huge, huge thing for me. And it is a huge pl- privilege to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm ready to answer any questions you have about any song and any album or anything that's touched you. I'm, I'm psyched to listen to what you have to say and to give give some insight. If, if I can provide it, I'll be happy to provide some insight. <laughs> Let's, I, what I want to do is uh, I do want to kind of go into your story to how you get to doing the stuff you're doing now. But before we do, since you just did that great invitation, I do want to let's just chat for a second about probably my two favorite moments. And you have to forgive me if I'm missing something that wasn't you. But my my favorite Vampire Weekend song is Hannah Hunt. And I that moment where the piano comes in is just like I'm like, this is divine. I feel like I'm, you know, floating. Uh, is that <laughs> this is the actual Chris Farley? It's like, was that? Did you like that part? Um, <laughs> that that's my favorite one. And I just is you're on piano there, right? Yes, that was yes. I'm playing piano, some slide guitar, acoustic guitar, and organ. So I was doing a lot of stuff there. And I, yeah, that that song was it was something that Ezra had started. And I would say Ezra did the sort of traditional songwriting. Mm. And this dates back to sort of like, wow, it must have been. I, I feel like we worked on a version in 2010. So it was kicking around. Mm. And we, you know, we tried. But but you know what? I think we tried to play it even in a rehearsal back in like 08 or 07. What? Uh, maybe even 06. So we tried to sort of perform it. And it didn't really come together uh, back in the the first Vampire Weekend album era. And then for Contra, we tried to make a version and we actually started recording a version. And I've said this in interviews, but that version that we started kind of sounded like Nelly Furtado. (laughs) Well, that's cool. Yeah, it had a similar groove to Say It Right. And I had kind of sort of, I taken Ezra's piano chords and I sort of put a passing chord in between every chord of his in the verses 
and just kind of like, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't revolutionize his chords, but I just sort of, I gave them a little bit of momentum so that it was moving sort of between two chords as opposed to uh, vamping on one. And, and then uh, I remember there was, yeah, I remember the day that we kind of gave up on Hannah Hunt in 2009. And I, we both loved it. We both knew that there was something great there, but we, we, we just didn't see a way to finish it for that album. And there was 10 other songs to finish. So what changed about the song? How did it ended up? How did it end up on modern vampires? So then I think, you know, like there was a, about a year period where Ezra and I would get together one-on-one about like three or four times a week. And we would just kind of like pass ideas back and forth. He he would started stuff that we, we'd begin recording and we'd begin the, the production phase and I would start stuff and he would come up with vocal parts for stuff I started and we'd pass it back and forth. And, you know, we really started recording that album in my apartment in Dumbo. And Hannah Hunt was one of those ones. I remember like one day when we got together, he said, let's let's open that one up and like or let's let's try let's try that one from scratch. Let's see where we go. And I remember one of the things that I was really interested in at that time was this thing that happens where you have a Hammond organ, you have a piano playing these kind of pentatonic lines in octaves. I'm I'm using some some music <laughs> jargon, but we have lots of listeners that are musicians, and they'll get a kick out of it. So go as as uh, headlong into that as you want. There are these classic songs, like Bob Dylan songs, or songs by the band, or even the band being Bob Dylan's backing band. Mm. And there's this kind of there's this thing that happens when the piano is playing and the organ is wailing away and and they're kind of doing different things. And there's this kind of feeling that you get from all those things happening together that I was like, we got to chase that feeling. That, that palette of sounds is what we should pursue on this. So, so that moment in Hannah Hunt was really about like just something very simple that you would hear in the wait by the band, if you know that song like take take a load off Fanny. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that song, yeah. right? But yeah, you might not think that that was an inspiration for Hannah Hunt, but it definitely was. And and so was stuff like Queen Jane Approximately by Bob Dylan and Positively Fourth Street or even Like a Rolling Stone. If, if you listen to those songs, there's there's that combination of sounds that it appealed to me and I was, you know, deconstructing it and, and try to trying to reconstruct it in, in Hannah Hunt. So then I guess the, the part that comes after that was also kind of an important part of the song, just like wh- where could the song go? And at that point, I think we we'd recorded all the vocals for the song, except for we, you know, we wondered about like, should it go up an octave higher? And I, I asked Ezra, I was like, maybe you should try to sing that part an octave higher after the piano break. And he was kind of like, yeah, let me try it. And, you know, he, I don't think he'd, he'd never, like, really screamed like that on a Vampire mm. Weekend song before. And we did a few takes of it, and it, it just kind of stuck. But I will say, like, that that song, yeah, it was one that we wondered about because we had sort of tried and failed 
two times and we were sort of nervous about like whether it could be like what we always wanted it to be. And I think ultimately it was. In all honesty, it is one of my all time favorite songs. And, and I it's, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of good time with it. And I and I hadn't really thought about how the vocal take is kind of uncharacteristic of Ezra in a way. I hadn't ever thought about the drama of that is a little bit outside of the sensibility of Vampire Weekend in a way. Do you feel like that? I don't I don't know because I think like we'd worked on so much music over the years that like we we knew all these different sides of ourselves and and we could kind of call upon them from each other when we were making records. So, you know, I remember the day after Bush got reelected, we made this kind of like angry punk song mm. together that was called Four More Years. Right. And I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. No. Like, as, <laughs> yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen no. again. You can release um, that. It, well, I don't really <laughs> That is a good idea. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so like, I'm pretty sure I remember Ezra singing kind of like that back on, you know, when we did that, this was back in college when we mm. made that, that f- like kind of like somewhat tongue in cheek punk song. So yeah, it, yeah, I guess it was just kind of like it was something that we we knew could work. It was just about the you know making it making it happen. I really appreciate you going into the the weeds with that one. That is really cool for me. And uh, but I got I want to talk about your creative journey. This this podcast is mainly about you know dissecting creative journeys and 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 seeing how people developed and and all that kind of looking, you know, seeing patterns and all that. And one of the things we talk about a lot is just sensitivity and kind of what you were talking about when you're getting into the the feeling of those particular songs and how, you know, these two instruments doing different things give this particular feeling and and trying to recreate that and and the mechanics of that. Like that's very much like the stuff that we get into and I wonder just in terms of like origin story what music really made you want to be a musician early on? Was it a the typical kind of teenage year stuff or what whatever music is to you now? When did it become that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I can definitely trace it back to an album called Octung Baby by yeah. U2 that came out in 1991. And I remember my brother had it on CD. And of course, I wanted to be like my brother, but I was younger, three and a half years younger. So I didn't have a CD player. I just had a cassette player. So I had a, I had Octung Baby on cassette because I wanted to listen to it. Yeah. Um, and if, if ever, you know, if you know about U2 and their history and their trajectory, Octung yeah. Baby was a very different album for them. They mm. had never sort of incorporated industrial music or loops or a sense of irony or a kind of darkness, a sort of humorous, macabre sense of darkness. Mm. And Octung Baby, which came out in 91, it saw you two sort of do the, the hardest maneuver, which is to like get weirder and more anthemic at the same time. And and I didn't hear that album that way. I've gone back and, you know, like studied sort of the history and trajectory of U2, but I didn't get there like that. I was sort of I was born in 83, so I would have been eight years old when Octung Baby came out. 
And it was the first album that kind of like I really experienced as an album. Prior to that, mm. I had all these Beatles singles that my dad had like CD singles of every single released by the Beatles. And I also had this very strange attraction to classical music, which, you know, I would sort of like wait till everyone had left the house and listen to Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture really loud as a kid and kind of soak that up. And I I don't really know what brought me there. It was definitely a situation where like I told my parents that I wanted this CD and they were nice enough to take me to the store to get it. And they, they also love classical music, but there was some classical music that I just sort of had this really strange attraction to and was drawn to. Hmm. What either with that or the Octane Baby, what kind of feelings or emotions or things was, was it doing for you that was something you really wanted at the time? Well, yeah, you know, I remember like if you if if you know the photographer Anton Corbin, he 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 took all these photos of them and I think they they put they lined them up in the in kind of like a grid and they're these really high contrast very like cool tones and they're this kind of like mysterious there's a quality of it that just felt a little bit mysterious and dangerous and and endlessly fascinating and layered. There's there's so many layers in Octung Baby, and I think that's part of what really drew me to it. And it, what's funny is the song that I remember like being the first one that really appealed to me was Wild Horses, which now when I listen to the album, I'm kind of like, oh, this song is the most throwaway. Uh, if you had to get rid of one, I hope it's this one. But that was also the song that sort of ma- made me want to listen to the album and and made me sort of addicted to the album in the way that I've become addicted to other albums, you know, over my lifetime. But I think that was the first album that I kind of fell for in that way. But it's inter- I thought it was interesting that to you, the listening experience was so synonymous that there's some kind of like you know, blendy synesthesia thing between the music impact and the visual impact. And I think probably a lot of people don't know this, but did you design all of the Vampire Weekend record covers? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think on the, on the second and the third albums, what was unique about what I did was I found those photos. Right. And on the first one, that photo was actually taken at a show that we, uh, we played in, in college and it was a Polaroid and Ezra was like, Oh, I think this could be the cover. And that one, that was just a matter of sort of like laying out the text. Whereas on the second and the third album, those were photos that I found on the internet. So in addition to like the text and the layout, it was about like finding those pictures. And, and yes, I think that for me, uh, music and, and the visual world are completely connected. I, I think when I'm listening to sound, I, I'm often seeing things. I don't know how to describe it. I don't, I don't have synesthesia in the way that I've heard people describe synesthesia. I have yeah. been asked by many people if I, if I am synesthetic, but I'm not. I will say that for me, they're just deeply linked and I can't, I can't unlink them. And uh, I think a great recording is one that, has a lot of colors in it and I don't yeah I don't know how else to describe it 
that's my goal as a producer whenever I'm working on music is whenever I'm working on a recording is just like let's let's make sure the colors whatever the color palette is there like let's make sure that it's right and that let's make sure nothing dulls down these colors which I think can happen very easily like you'll have a song and you'll you know you'll work on it for a few hours and bounce it down and listen to it in your car or on your headphones or wherever you listen to music outside of the studio and it'll have some there's something about the combination of the sounds that it like it paints a picture mentally and and then it's easy to lose that sometimes and all of a sudden like everything becomes the same color and you're like whoa why did that happen what happened how do we fix it how do we keep the colors alive and so that's oftentimes why I think it can take me a long time to finish things or I'll spend a lot of time at the final stages kind of going back and forth to make sure that something is as good as it can be because to me it is very visual yeah man i love that this idea of you know the saturation and the contrast of the sound uh just you know visually feeling right and i we talk about on the show all the time i I often when i go to make an illustration will make a playlist and be like i want my illustration to sound like that and there's some weird thing that you get from kind of thinking about it in an abstract way for whatever reason that helps me get in there and it reminds me of um i've heard solange will do massive mood boards and mood videos and really get all the visuals right even before they're making music does that ring a bell does that kind of is that kind of right in your mind yeah i mean i think everybody has to have like a a concept when they go into making something whether it's a song or an album and i think if the concept is purely musical then then the music is kind of bland it's about integrating or or i wouldn't even say the music i would say that there was the end product is kind of bland i think it's often times like the best stuff is about integrating the visual world the written word with music whether it's yeah paintings or art or films or books or even just you know inspirations, attitudes, people, you know, people that are inspiring. Like, I think that's, that's like the best, the best stuff sort of is inspired by more than just music. The best music is inspired by more than just music, I think, for sure. Yeah, I never thought and I've never thought about the, the inspiration of a person. But that's, that's totally true. There's also this element of like, some of my best things are things where I've almost made them like a gift to a friend because I understand their sensibility that overlaps in mine. And in that way, I'm inspired to kind of meet them there and I'm excited to send them something. And there's some, all these tools are like things to get out of the limited perspective of the blank page with the medium you're using. Like, I don't know, it seems like to break you out and and open it up or something. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right. So uh, you went to, you majored in music, right? In Columbia? Yeah, I did. Was that a difficult choice to major in music? Did you know going in that you were going to do that? And did you feel like sure about that? Was that scary? It wasn't scary. It was what I knew that I wanted to study arriving there as a freshman. I was also interested in math, which... I'm still interested in, but in a different, I mean, not, I didn't study math in the, in the way that I studied music there. 
and uh, I thought I might be a composer, either a film composer or a composer of classical music, or you know, as it I came to understand it, university music, because the people that write that kind of music they do it for universities in universities, and I guess I found that there it felt like sort of limiting to make music that wouldn't be heard by everyone. And I think there's a part of me that was interested in trying to push the game forward in a universal way, like in, in the sense of like to try to make music that was game changing, but that everybody could hear. And that's still kind of been my my motive in making music. I, I wanna make music that's like as complex as possible on some level, but also that has mass appeal because I think it's it's more enticing, I guess. That is really fascinating. It kind of feels like there's a, a breaking down of the dualism of the stuff you were doing, that you were listening to as a kid when you're listening to the classical stuff and then you're listening to U2. It's almost like, you know, those two things exist both within your taste and point of view and sensibility. And, it, and are, is that what you're kind of saying is you're trying to... You're trying to create from both of those places in a combinatorial kind of way. Yeah, I, I think so. And and yeah, not I wouldn't just say classical music is like the uh, the only sort of complex music that I, I was intrigued by because I was also intrigued by jazz as a kid and like stuff like Jimi Hendrix and stuff like Persian music that my parents had around the house. I guess I guess what it is is like, yeah, the, the most sort of intricate and elaborate and naughty music, like K-N-O-T-T-Y. Like there's something about that music or even like I remember when, when I started to get into Timbaland and his mm -hmm. productions and his like sense of rhythm and drum programming. Like it just felt like, oh, like, this is what we should aspire to. This is what I should aspire to, is to make music that that pushes boundaries, but, you know, that can also be on MTV, which, yeah. you know, MTV isn't anything anymore. But on, <laughs> when we were kids, I don't know how old you are, Andy, but I'm, I'm 36 I'm 34, so now. I remember music on music TV. Yeah. Yeah. I have to remember that. Yeah, so MTV was just like, you know, it was, it, in some ways that was kind of like a uh, – a loading dock or like a meeting place for all different kinds of music. And yeah, it seemed like a challenge. Like what's the most complex music you could get on MTV? <laughs> yeah, man, that, that's so interesting. And, you know, without really putting any hierarchy to it, it kind of reminds me of to look at it from a different medium again. It kind of reminds me of like what a chef will do you know, and they come from the South and they grew up eating biscuits and gravy or they grew up eating, uh, I don't know, Cajun food or whatever. And they, then they go move to a city where they're tasting, tasting fine dining. And there's some kind of, you know, how do I fuse those things or elevate this portion or, you know, it's, that's what it kind of reminds me of. Does that feel right? Yes. And it's interesting that you bring this up. I don't know if you know this, but my mom is a cookbook author and chef and so oh, i didn't I, know that no yes so i grew up uh basically at, at any given moment i was tasting a recipe that my mom was perfecting 
and I was helping her in the kitchen. I was learning about cooking through osmosis, just being around her. And so I, I did, I very much grew up in a chef's household, in a chef's kitchen, surrounded by like, you know, constant fine tuning and, and tweaking. And so, yes, I, I think that food and music are very, very much, they're analogs and they're very connected and there's threads that connect them. Like, you know, like when you're balancing a mix, just like when you're putting salt on French fries, you know, if you put too much salt on French fries, you can't eat them. Yeah. And if you don't put any salt on French fries, you know, you did. <laughs> you don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to eat them. You want a little, you want the right amount. And I think that, that can often be a, a, a huge part of music. And I think it's certainly something that is super important to me is, is to have mixes that sound balanced and that are, pl and are fun to listen to. Like, there's definitely music that I hear that's being made in the world and released. And I'm just like, there's things about it I like, but I don't think it's fun to listen to because like it hurts your ears. You know, yeah. that's like a real, very real thing for me. And it's something that I care a lot about. I, this, it makes so much sense. I, you know, I, what I love about the creativity of food is it's so practical that it has this kind of humility. I love this idea of like, there's this understood thing in recipes. I mean, you know better than me, but I've, I've heard that, you know, in order for it to be your recipe, it's got to have three differences from the recipe that you learn from or from the recipes you learn from. And I think that, you know, I feel like I hear that kind of groundedness. And whenever you talk about music, like, you know, I'll hear you talk about on Song Exploder, talking about Coldplay and, and, you know, two seconds later, you're talking about some challenging thing that's really complicated. And, <laughs> you know, I just feel there's something about that approach to creativity through food that never loses sight of the fact that this is for people's consumption. Like, you know, and it sounds like that mentality rubbed off on you in some way. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I think it, my, my parents were special because they, they took me and my brother to see a lot of art when we were kids and we were constantly in museums and we were constantly being exposed to these kind of monumental pieces. And because we grew up in DC, that was really heightened too, because there's so much, art to see in DC. So yeah, I think you're right. Like there, there's something that's appealing about trying to make art that everybody can experience. That's, yeah. that's definitely something that I think about all the time. And I think that the song is this interesting unit in which it's kind of like, it's what I, it's my chosen unit for art. Cause I knew as a kid that I wanted to make art. And for a long time, I thought I might actually be a painter, draw comic books. That was a really big part of my life for many years. And really, I also, I also wanted to design cars and there's a part of me that still wants to design cars. It's not, not something I talk about a lot and we can get into that stuff. If you're curious, if you want me to talk about it, but I am, but I guess I look at like the song as the, that, the, that place, that three and a half minute or four and a half minute sort of place where I can put all my creativity into and and feel really fulfilled. That's that's I feel really when when a song comes out right, I feel like really artistically fulfilled in a way that I think 
I don't know that I, I could feel the same way about a painting, even though I spent, you know, three or four hours every day drawing when I was a kid, um, that sort of tapered off and, and, and music took its place. You still think about designing cars too? <laughs> I do. And I think it's very similar because it's like, it's again, it's to me that car design, it's like this sculpture that, that is roaming the streets and, and a really beautifully designed car is like, it's like an amazing song that everybody can, can experience, you know, like anyone can experience a beautifully designed car on the street. It can just be driving by and it can make you feel something. Um, now I know that everybody doesn't feel that way about cars. Like people don't get like, you know, turned on by cars the way yeah. I do. I, I literally can like feel the hairs on the back of my neck rise when like certain cars drive by the in the street i know that everybody doesn't feel that way i think more people probably feel that way about about music and songs yeah that's more a more common sensitivity but, <laughs> you know it's interesting just being in tune to that sensitivity is so for me that's so much about everything is led through that lens of what what are the things I'm hypersensitive to that other people aren't? So maybe you, you know, you're an amazing musician. I'm glad you picked that path, but man, what kind of cars could you have brought with that sensitivity? I'll always be wondering, maybe there's a second act uh, <laughs> for your, your car design career. And actually I wish that somebody, I don't feel, I actually, you know, I, the slickness of cars, I sometimes feel like, they're just like so worn and that we're, we don't have angles anymore. And like, I, you know, we need somebody to get in there and bring some of that. Well, I'll tell you one, one thing that's interesting about car design is that, so a car, our car's life cycle lasts about six years. And in addition to that, it takes, you know, seven or eight years to put the car in production. So mm. when you add that up, somebody who's a designing a car right now has to think about a design that will still be relevant 14 years from now. That is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like, it, it, it's like, imagine if I had to make like songs that, yeah. that couldn't come out for seven years and I'd have to like make sure that the song still, you know, was relevant to what was on the radio seven years from its release. That, that would be totally crazy. But as I'm saying it, that does seem like a fun challenge. I was going to say, this is a creative <laughs> prompt. Like, go make a song that you're like, this is going to be released seven years from now, and it's going to be played on the radio for seven years. And that's, that's what would I make and how would that sound? Like, that is, uh, yeah, I, I'm very interested in that. I might be drawing some things in that vein. That does remind me of, like, when, when me and Wes were making the Discovery album, I was very concerned with futurism. I was like, I want it to sound futuristic. Mm. Like, let's like, what can we do to make everything sound futuristic? Like, what's the most futuristic? Like, if there is anything that sounded vaguely futuristic in a song that we liked, I was like, let's just take that and push it to the limit. Let's let's try to make it as futuristic as it could possibly sound so that is that's awesome and that makes sense from that album i think i it, yeah it totally reads all right i'm i'm gonna 
rewind and go back a little bit to the thread. Although I feel like I could keep talking about car design, but you know, fans of yours, I'm not sure they came for that. But it's, <laughs> but it's what we got, and I was feeling. I, it. I need to bring in a new my my new wave of car fans. But yeah, I agree. Let's talk about music. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so when you so you you go to Columbia, and that's you know famously where Vampire Weekend is formed, as as far as I know, and. I wonder, you know, when there's a collaborative thing happening like that and pieces come together, when I'm forming partnerships creatively, I think I'm always kind of aware of what the other people are bringing to the table that at least at the time I don't have. And I wonder what those pieces were for Vampire Weekend and maybe even specifically Ezra, what was exciting about that to you of, you know, this give and take thing? I think we, throughout college, uh, Ezra and I met freshman year of college, and throughout college, we worked on these different projects in different capacities together. And in some ways, Vampire Weekend was the culmination of that. It was a live band, which we kind of hadn't done before. Or we actually, we sort of tried it back in when we were sophomores, and just it didn't really take. And then it was, you know, senior year, it was us kind of retrying that. And so it had that live component. And then it also had the recording component. And, you know, we had worked on recordings together throughout college. And pretty much as soon as Vampire Weekend started, we also started recording our songs. And those recordings that we were making, those recordings that I were what that I was producing that is what became our first album. And, you know, even before we graduated from college, we had started Oxford Comma, we had started Cape Cod Quasa Quasa, we had started Walcott, and elements of those recordings were done, you know, on campus. And as we continued to finish those songs, you know, that that's what became the first Vampire Weekend album. So. Yeah, it was this kind of combination of, you know, like the the live component, which was felt very new. The fact that we could play songs for uh, friends at, at these kind of like literary societies, which were, I don't want to say they were frat houses. I mean, maybe technically they were, but it was more kind of like, they were. it was more co-ed. It was like we were playing the quote unquote, the queer frat um it was those that was some of my favorite shows were when we were playing in these old houses that had just kind of like it, it wasn't really a concert venue it was almost like a it was almost like a dance hall in the 50 sense of the word and it'd be like a townhouse on the second floor and we'd be just like you know playing for a crowd of people that was jumping up and down and the whole floor was shaking but let me answer your question so yeah <laughs> I'm dude, I'm lost in all this. I'm, I'm thinking, are there recordings of any of that stuff? <laughs> yeah, there are some actually. Uh, I think if you search ADP, you might be able to find okay. some old recordings of that stuff. But yeah, I think Ezra was someone that I knew from, you know, from the first time that we kind of sent each other music. I knew that he was someone who was an amazing songwriter off the bat. And I think I was getting better and better at recording music um and writing music and i actually don't think i was good at doing those things 
when I started school, I had a lot of like desire to write great music, but I didn't, I wasn't really that good at it and I had to fail. And I mm. think I, I remember this moment. I, you know, I don't want to say I wasn't good at it. I just, I remember this moment. Well, yeah, I actually do want to say I wasn't good at it. If you're listening to this podcast right <laughs> yeah, now and, say and, it. and you make music and you're not happy with what you make, guess what? That's a good thing. Yeah. It's good to not be happy with what you make because that really means that you care and that you want to find that thing that does make you happy in your own work. And I think you got to struggle. you got to fail. Everybody talks about this. But throughout college, I think I was getting better and better at making recordings, at doing things like writing string arrangements and, you know, production like drum sounds, guitar sounds, vocals, all these things. Throughout college, I was sort of on this journey on my own and getting better and better at doing those things. Um, and at the same time, I was studying classical music. So I was learning how to write for violin and viola and cello. I was learning how to write for orchestra. So I was just gaining these necessary sort of like uh, knowledge bases. And when our senior year came, we had this kind of culmination where the songwriting side was really fueled by Ezra and the recording side was fueled by me. And of course we had overlap in, in different ways. But then having Chris and Chris, who we knew from campus and we'd worked with in different capacities as well, like sort of the four of us kind of like built off of one another. And it, it just sort of had its natural momentum on, on a few different fronts. Like I was saying, on there's the recording side and also the, the live performance side. Mm. I want to just highlight something you said that I think is really interesting, like this idea that part of, you know, one of the tools in your tool belt is that metal detector taste thing that is telling you it's not good. Like this idea <laughs> of like, it, it, if you're unhappy with what you're creating, that means that there's some, some internal mechanism that will help you hit that target because you, you can see the gap. Do you know what I, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and, and it's funny, like, I, I feel like people who are too happy with what they make, oftentimes they don't, they don't ultimately, even if they're, they're, they might be happy in the moment, but it's the people who are sort of obsessed with, with finding every crevice that's, yeah. you know, the spaces that could be filled that could be made better. It's, it's that striving for more that results, I think, in, in really amazing, you know, creative work. It's interesting this, you know, it's almost like you're looking for something particular, like, you, you know, it's almost like a weird search as in, and you've kind of described that a few different times of what it is you're trying to achieve in these, in these things. And early on, you're like, it's not, this is not it at all. It's not, I'm not doing it. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Did, and you know, at the time it seems like from what I know about your story, you were also not comfortable being the lead man on the project. Is that right? I, I don't, well, I will say this from the time that I was 14, I knew I wanted to be a record producer. Okay. I, 
I knew that I wanted to produce records and I loved so I loved songwriting and I was I think I was like kind of figuring out it, it it took me longer to sort of figure out what I wanted to say as a songwriter. I'd say in the in the early days back when I was in college there was one song that I you know that I wrote pretty much on my own that I was proud of and that was Campus that mm. be- became a Vampire Weekend song but it started just as a song that I wrote kind of on acoustic guitar almost like f- if you can imagine it finger picked acoustic guitar mm. and then it became a song on that I sort of orchestrated and started recording with strings and then it became a Vampire Weekend song um that Ezra sang but but I would say, like, I think it just, you're right that I, w- I wasn't exactly sure about what I wanted to say in terms of a songwriting voice. I did have more concrete ideas about what I wanted to say as a composer or as a producer. And I think it took me time throughout my 20s to kind of f- figure out what I wanted to say as a songwriter. Although I, I was doing it, I was constantly doing it. But I, it was harder for me to, to have like that clear vision of what I wanted to say songwriting wise. Hmm. But but I was doing it, and and at and at times like songs like Campus or Diplomat Son, my songwriting voice was kind of coming out in Vampire Weekend, and also in Discovery, my songwriting voice was was definitely coming out on about half of those songs. But yeah, I would say like. I don't think I had a problem so much with the positioning of being a lead singer. It was more kind of like what I wanted to say that felt more important. And I wasn't quite sure yet uh, how I wanted to say it or or what exactly I wanted to say. Uh, That's fascinating. Uh, I was actually just going to ask you about Diplomat's son because I remember my little brother and I are huge fans. And we both like freaked out about that song. And that's, I think, where we started pulling the thread and got to know more your part in the, and, and all the other things you're doing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about how, if people don't know, this is, is this the first Vampire Weekend song that you sang vocals on? You're, you're at towards the end. Um, yes. Or somewhere I think in the it, middle, I guess. But is that the first one? Yeah. I mean, I, I sang vocal harmonies on almost all the songs that have vocal sure. harmonies, but but yeah, this was the first one that I take the lead for a section of the song. And it was a song that, like I was saying, like t- to me that the, there was the the production side and the composition side, I did I immediately had this very concrete idea where I wanted to take these two reggae feelings, um, like grooves, the bon cha 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 and also the Bum ba bum bum ba bum bum ba bum, and they're yeah. they're two very different feelings, and they're actually different tempos too. Mm. And I I had this idea like, yeah. So the the second one is much slower than the first one. I was like, what yeah. would it be like to make a song that jams these two things together? But then also on the other side, like we were just talking about, like the songwriting voice. I was like, what about telling a story that is uniquely a same-sex romance and is there a way to do that sort of in the vampire weekend context and can can 
can it also like be this sort of political move in the sense that, you know, there is a tradition in reggae music or more specifically dance hall music of being homophobic. Mm. And, you know, if you've heard, you know, if you've heard the butty man or butty boy, it's like these are slurs against gay people. Mm. But instead of trying to criticize like a, another culture, I just found it much more sort of subversive to synthesize something and and put sort of like this queer love story inside of a dance hall setting or a reggae setting and and then let let that speak for itself. I've actually never talked about this in this such is great. explicit I'm yeah. loving <laughs> this is so fascinating. Yeah, I haven't talked about this explicitly because you know, I guess it's it's been 11 years since we wrote that song. It's been 11 years since that song came out. But to me, there's something fascinating about, you know, maybe now it's okay to talk about, but at the time I, I found it much more powerful to let it speak for itself. Wow. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I'm wondering uh, how this tracks to, that's in, I think, 2010. Uh, and then all the way, I think around then you released a single, but it was much later, like 2016 or something, where you released Bike Dream, which is taking some of that stuff and that personal, it seemed like personal development and, and what you want to say, it tracks with creative development, right? Like they go hand in hand and it seems like Bike Dream was an extension of some of that. Is that correct? Yeah. No, it, it definitely. I think I was like, I was thinking about like coming out, what that meant. And I was thinking about, you know, the the word discreetly is even in Bike Dream. So I was thinking about like mm. what it means to be with somebody discreetly and what it means to want that or to need that. And if that's healthy or not healthy. And, you know, I, I'm, I was definitely thinking about shame and sort of wanting to eradicate shame from my consciousness and maybe, you know, maybe not fully explicitly, but those things were on my mind. Can you just, uh, I want to dive deeper into the, uh, that song for people that maybe aren't familiar. Can you just ta talk a little bit about bike dream? And this is one of the big songs on your solo release and it's a fantastic song. Highly recommend people go listen to it. I've listened to it 3 million times. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Baby. But can you talk about a little bit about the idea of that song and, and what you were exploring? Cause it's, I'm, I'm just interested in, you know, it seems to be a pattern of creative breakthrough goes hand in hand often with personal breakthrough and personal journey. And it seems like that's kind of what was happening for you. I think, yeah, it, it, just to sum up to or just to give people a sense of what Bike Dream is about. It's a love song <laughs> that is also sort of asking questions about some of the things that I just mentioned about like discretion and shame and w like, you know, w what do you want from somebody that you love? Um, and the chorus goes, two boys, one to love you sweetly, one dis does so discreetly, never will he meet me. So it's like the, the two boys are not, in fact, two different people. It's more of asking a question of like, what kind of boyfriend do you want? 
and and why do you want that discreet boyfriend so it's kind of self-reflective in that sense some people have thought it was about <laughs> a thruple but it's not <laughs> i can i can clarify on this podcast it can be read that way i can i can see that uh <laughs> um, but I feel like I heard you say at some point something about whether you – did you consider masking the same-sex thing at some point or you approached it in a way that was still discreet and lyrically or – this was, you know, I think Diplomat Son was less overt. Like I feel like you have to kind of listen to the lyrics to hear what's going on there. But this felt more like – a coming out kind of song is that right yeah the cor- i mean the chorus opens up with the words two boys so it's like inherently yeah. like already we're we're in a queer space but i will say something fascinating is that lennon stella i don't know if you know who that is she was on the show nashville she plays connie Britton's daughter on that show and she subsequently become a pop star but as she was rising to pop stardom she did a cover of the chorus of Bike Dream on acoustic guitar. Hmm. And it works so well. And it doesn't it doesn't feel strange to hear her sing that. And uh, I think that that's kind of a testament to what I was going for, which was to, to create a song that could slip through the masses, that could work as a song sung by a, a woman and it could work sung by anyone really and uh and i guess yeah i guess like to me that that has felt important in uh in making queer art uh on some level like it feels like that's the challenge is to try to make something that like we talked about earlier that anybody could love whether they identify as queer, whether they're not ready to identify as queer or, you know, whether they think they hate queer people or they hate gay people or they hate lesbians or they hate uh, people who identify as non-binary, like whatever it is, can you reach those people and, and, you know, hook them and then pull the rug out from under them? Yeah. (laughs) make people see things from a different side that's kind of like that's what we're trying to do sometimes You feel your heart begin to work And now you're all dressed up, of course Inhaling cabs out of your door On 14th Street I feel my head between my knees And orange swimming through the cheese And orange swimming through the cheese Where could I go? What could I do? Put in the state my lips and and there's an empathy, too, of, like, anybody, anyone listening to that song can relate to the romance story of them, regardless of gender and, and sexuality and, and whatever. And I think, you know, I, I'm i glad you brought it back to some of the earlier stuff we were talking about, because I wanted to think about how, you know, the stuff that you got from you 2 back in the day, whatever that was doing for you and doing for your soul and doing for you as a, as wanting to be a musician mixed with what you grew into wanting to say. I'm just curious of, you know, what I, I'm very, I, my, my uh, listeners are sick of me saying this, but it's something I think about all the time in creativity. There's a Gary Shandling quote of 
giving what you didn't get. And I just wonder, you know, what does, do you ever think about creating music that would have hit Rostam growing up even more than you two, because you're telling stories that you could relate to more, you know, directly or, you know, or what do you want to, what do you want to do in music? You mentioned on the creative side, like getting complex stuff to be accessible. That's one thing that you're giving that you maybe didn't get so much, but yeah, I don't know if you can speak to that. Just like, what are you with your drop into the creative ocean? What are you, what are you trying to put in there that maybe isn't there yet? Yeah. I think that you make a really great point, which is going into making music it's important to have some kind of greater goal i think or going into creating anything and yet you cannot be defined by that goal if you know if all you care about is making making something that satisfies your initial desire usually the the sort of end product is just that it's just dissatisfying that desire and it's not something yeah. greater so yeah, I think you make a great point. Like, you got to try to make the music that you want to hear in the world that you feel like is missing. And at the same time, you got to let let yourself get a little bit lost in the process and let it take you where it takes you. Like, I don't know if you ever do this, Andy, but when you sit down in front of a sketchpad or an iPad or a Wacom tablet, if you just let yourself draw and not think consciously about where it's ending up, like, where are yeah. you going? Like, that's important because the creative process, I think, should have a mixture of conscious and unconscious work. Like, you know, and it's similar to like that idea of thinking fast and slow, which is a book my dad told me everything about, but I, I didn't read, but I need to read. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's like these two things that need to come together, the fast twitch muscle and the slow twitch muscle that the conscious creative impulse and then the unconscious sort of guiding you without you knowing exactly where it's going or why it's going there. I, and you, I feel like you hit this in a really eloquent way of when you were talking about, you know, when you're talking about having a purpose in your work, that can sound like if you take that to its completion, it sounds like an answer, you're and and often I've heard like creative work that has an answer is propaganda, and you are saying in Bike Dream, even though you have all of these personal, you know, purposes and things you want to say in them, you instead of a statement, you said you are asking questions, which is a very weird tension between those two things. Of you know, instead, you know, when you're drawing on the page and you're not having a conscious intention, in a way, you're asking yourself a question, and that's. There's some bringing people into that is I, I, some of that tension. Does that, you know, does that feel right? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I'm just now I'm just thinking about some songs that I've loved over the years that that all they do is ask questions Speci for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we talked about Hannah Hunt, but I'm specifically thinking about Bob Dylan songs like Queen Jane, approximately, where I think all the lyrics are in a question form. So, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I think questions are hugely important in art. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't heard that quote before about propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the yeah the opposite of propaganda art is 
art that's asking questions. And what do you, just to bring it back in that, do you feel like what are some of the, you know, uh, like I mentioned before, and I plugged it a few times, In a River is such a good song. And I was, and I'm like, I'm hoping there's, there's more in some of this vein because I, it just, I don't know, it does it for me. And I just wonder what are some of the questions and thing mixed with what you want to say? What are you working? What are you excited about and kind of wrestling with right now? Inner River was kind of inspired by some of my own personal experiences where I felt like this sense of like a, I don't know how else to say, but like a queer utopia or like a feeling of just being kind of like being free in a way that I, I hadn't experienced until I started going to uh, some like queer beaches, which I don't know if any, I don't know, like if you're a queer person, you should go seek those out because there's something that happens there where you're surrounded by queer people and clothes are optional and you lose a sense of feeling like judgment and feeling um, other. And, and and for me that, you know, that specifically has happened in, in Provincetown, Massachusetts, mm. which has an incredible queer beach that takes about 20 minutes to get to. And the story of Inner River is sort of the story of that queer beach. But I, I, I in some ways disguised it, not, not fully intentionally, but it kind of came out of me more like as river as opposed to beach. Maybe it's just easier mm -hmm. to, maybe it just flows better. And right. you know, yeah. that is important in songwriting. Yeah. So maybe I wanted to disguise it subconsciously. I didn't want people to know exactly what the song was about. Cause I think sometimes that's important. It's important mm -hmm. for songs not to be super obvious if they're about real things and real experiences. For me, like this idea of a society without judgment and the, the idea that that's, that's something that you can find, that was something that I, I hadn't really encountered until I got to Provincetown. Um, and both the town and the beach, like in different ways, provided me with the sense uh, that I'd never felt before of belonging. And, you know, it's it's fully a queer town where a majority of people are not straight. I don't want to say like specifically gay because I think it's more inclusive than that. And, you know, depending on what week you're there, it might be lesbian week or what they call it girl splash or uh, baby dyke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, now I'm really going on about Provincetown, but just to go back to what you were saying, I think for me, I've spent the last two and a half or three years working on a record that I think one of the huge themes of is change. And I don't want to say too much more than that, Sure, yeah. but it's it's sort of like picking up the strands of belonging like like you hear on in a river and kind of looking at how belonging and change are linked and how 
like everybody, I think wrestles with change and sometimes to feel, you know, belonging, you have to submit to change. And I think all of us have a degree of fear about change. And I had a, mm-hmm. I had some really big life realizations in the last six years. And I think that that's really kind of informed my songwriting perspective. And um, that's what my second album is a lot about, uh, which I don't want to say too much about, but depending yeah, on when, <laughs> depending on when this podcast airs, uh, maybe there'll be a new song from me in the world, but, uh, but you know, I, I'm super appreciative that you were so that so forthcoming with all your story and also in your music that you've shared so much of yourself. And I, and I love hearing the story of that because, you know, I don't consider myself gay or queer. And I feel that even though I know that that comes from that song comes from that perspective, it's, it makes total sense to me what you're saying about belonging and, and, and non-judgment because it doesn't feel like a, it's, it comes from that perspective, but it doesn't feel like a sexual song. It, it doesn't, it feels very much like a song about feeling comfortable and, you know, yeah. does that, does that, that make sense? I like that. Yeah. I really like that. I think that's huge. And, and for me, like there's there, like I've said numerous times in this podcast, there's something so fascinating about aiming for universal. Yeah. Uh, whether you get there or not. Well, I, I, you know, I appreciate it. I, and I also think it's, you know, I remember growing up and finding out like, okay, Elton John's gay and you're thinking, then why is all of his song about women? And I didn't understand all that. And I, you know, in terms of this idea of giving what you didn't get, it seems like, and I know you're more than that. That's not all of who you are, but I think it's, it's just really in terms of that non-judgment and belonging. And I think your music democratizing with the, the way you approach music, it's, it's doing a lot of really interesting, great things. And uh, I, you know, I just want to, I'm, I'm really glad you took time out. Thanks for spending so much time doing this. Uh, and I can't wait to hear the new stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Andy. Appreciate it. Grammy award winning artist, Ross Tam. Thank you. You are so much more than that to me. Your music is so personal and has been such a huge deal for me emotionally and I am so grateful for you putting in the time and energy and and heart and spirit to go on your creative journey and to stop and pause for a minute and have this conversation with me it it honestly means the world your your stuff has accompanied me on my runs and you know while I work and just all uh, on road trips and I'm just thrilled to have you on the show and uh and to share your music with these lovely people who are listening thank you all for listening hope you love the episode go check out ross dam's album june 4th wherever you get your music you can go check out the singles including forerunner which is a total banger in my opinion um as well and uh yeah uh, follow ross dam this guy is the real deal in terms of creativity Thanks again, Rostam. Appreciate you.
Parents about that virtual event for kids, I'm doing a drawing event with Mightier, the company that makes video games to help kids discover emotional strength. I'm all about that. It will be hands-on. We'll be talking about how I use drawing and how I've always used drawing ever since I was a kid to calm myself down. Yes, I've been calm before, and I'll be teaching them how to draw some of my Invisible Things characters. It's going to be super fun. We did a little activity like this for a small group, and it was a blast. The event is going to be April 14th, 2021, just in a few weeks. It's free, and you don't even need a Mightier account. Go sign up the spots are limited register at mightier.com slash pizza thanks to yoni wolf and the band y for our theme music thanks to alex sugg for our soundtrack thanks to jordan aaron for editing the show content assistance thank you to the backwards to, to Sophie Pizza, my wife, and Ryan Appleton, who also helps with sponsors. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you love this episode. And uh, until we speak next week, you know what to do. Stay pepped up. <laughs>